CinemaSins has a fan club. It's called the Sin Club, and members get all sorts of things like early episodes, bonus videos, merch discounts, and even monthly bonus podcasts. Membership starts at $3 a month, and you can sign up now at patreon.com slash CinemaSins. I want to know what's up with that guy that's just a big trash can full of body parts. Like, I, I want people <laughs> asking those questions after the movie. Welcome to Sincast, presented by CinemaSins. All right, everybody, welcome to the Sincast. This is Chris Atkinson from CinemaSins, joined by Jonathan Watkins. Hello, hello. And today we have a very special guest. It is writer-director Stephen Kostansky. He has uh, directed a movie called Psycho Gorman. Uh, it comes out uh, January 22nd, uh, I believe, theaters on demand and digital. Steven, welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. Great to be on the cast. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you. Um, I The thing that I love about this movie, I don't know if you had some sort of philosophy while writing this thing. It seems like you went through sort of a Seinfeld kind of thing where you were like, no learning, no drama, no learning, basically. <laughs> is what I don't know if that's what you went through on this, but this is a, uh, this, this movie is, is, is a straight up comedy. I mean, there's like no moments in here where people are stopping to sort of assess anything or try to learn anything. <laughs> so oh, definitely. <laughs> what was your philosophy on this? This is, I haven't seen a movie like this in some time. If, if ever, uh, I mean, my philosophy was, I love all, the tropes of like, like movies from my childhood movies from the eighties and nineties specifically. Mm -hmm. um, I love the dramatic arcs of those types of movies. I feel like there are arcs like that are riddled with cliches that people have tried to steer away from uh, mm -hmm. in more modern stuff, uh, which personally I think is a bad move because I think there's like something to be said uh, for that familiarity um, and like kind of the emotional resonance of that. Uh, so I wanted this movie to have a, like the classic tropes of like a, a family adventure movie where in those movies, typically people learn some kind of lesson at the end. Uh, and I just wanted to have the characters experience all of those moments while also like getting nothing out of them. So like there's, for example, <laughs> characters like there's a scene later on where the father uh, or Greg gives Mimi, uh, the protagonist of the movie, a little pep talk. Mm -hmm. And his pep talk is while on the surface and on an instinctual emotional level makes sense. And to the characters, it appears to make sense. But to the audience, you're watching this man basically tell his daughter that, you know, he was potentially molested by a guy in a van. And, right. but he's, but he's like framing it as like, here's an important story about trust that I need to tell my daughter. And so <laughs> I just, I like the idea of taking all of those tropes, those very cliched moments and just ex exposing them for how ultimately like meaningless they are while at the same time still having the emotional beat land. Like, I feel like a lot <laughs> of that stuff is so, it's so intuitive and instinctual that like even if the words themselves are total gibberish or in this case like like yeah him exposing something very dark from his past when it's supposed <laughs> to be this uplifting thing like it still kind of feels right if that makes yeah. sense and that's like a thing that i think movies like a lot of movies used to do like they really used to embrace that kind of emotional truth yeah. uh, that these Absolutely. stories had and so i wanted to have as much of that in the movie as possible where you you leave the movie feeling satisfied, like like emotionally satisfied, but intellectually you're like thinking about how messed up a lot of it was and how <laughs> nonsensical it was, even though you still leave like with a full stomach, essentially. Um, right. So that was the thing that I wanted to play with awesome. in this movie was <laughs> uh, having it be like satis this satisfying adventure spectacle that is also like absurd gibberish at the same well, time you, you nailed it you nailed it um and since you brought him up can we talk about adam brooks for a second um i i just discovered the the editor uh 
a few months ago, actually, I just watched it for the first time. Um, oh yeah. And it was just, it was just blown away uh, by him. And cause I was like, who's like uh, the idea of making a, a parody of a Giallo in like 2014 or whenever that came out is insane. Yeah. And then on top <laughs> of that, it works like gangbuster. Like it's, it's, I don't know. It's just amazing. But he's so good in that. And then he was also really, really good in this. His per- performances are so genuine. And especially yeah. with PG, he play he plays pathetic so well mm-hmm. that <laughs> it like in a way that isn't grating, in a way that's like really endearing. Um, his characters are just always so heartfelt and real. Just- um, he's just a great actor and I will cast him into everything I make. His sense of humor, I just haven't seen. Like that, that scene, the dinner scene with the chicken. Um, I mean, I was just dying during that scene. I don't know how else to well, put it. <laughs> he, I mean, it was a good combination of my like clunky writing and his, <laughs> and his like genuine execution of everything that I wrote. Like, that I think led to this, he's like a very Simpsons esque character to me. Yeah. Like, he's very much the Homer of this movie. Where he is yeah. so like up his own ass that you kind of feel bad for him because <laughs> it's like, oh, this guy just doesn't have a clue. But he's just like in his own head feeling good about himself, even though he like can't even like not that you should microwave chicken, but he couldn't even do that properly. Like so yeah. <laughs> oh my god, when she opens that microwave, yeah, that that just that from beginning to end, that whole sequence, and just even the thing with the with the TV and and he just starts crying, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, just, a lot of those were moments that we like found it on the day, yeah. like specifically the scene with uh, Susan getting mad at him about wrecking the microwave, and then him like being so hurt by that. <laughs> <laughs> uh was a thing where we were just in the moment shooting it um and we're doing this slow zoom in on him as he's saying you're welcome and off camera i'm just telling him like yeah like tear up like really be sad like and and as we're pushing it further and further like he actually starts crying and like we don't use it in the movie because the take is so insanely long but we got to a point where tears were rolling down his face and it was it was amazing so a lot of it is just I feel like I'll just do whatever it takes to get into that scenario where it's like me and the other guys from Astron six in a room, like throwing these dumb ideas around and then putting them on camera because it's in that moment that all this magic happens and you just come up with this really absurd shit that like if it, if it was on the page and like I had to like present it to financiers and be like, and then in this scene, uh, the mom is going to get mad at the dad and he's going to start crying because he couldn't microwave chicken properly. Like then there, <laughs> there'd be some discussions about like, well, this scene doesn't accomplish anything. And I'd be like, well, it kind of does <laughs> again on a like core emotional level. It does. I was lucky enough to have financiers on this movie that were like, great. That makes us laugh. Go for it. Um, which is a scenario. I don't know if I'll ever happen again. This movie might be a one of a kind scenario, unfortunately, mm-hmm. because I had some very trusting, uh, producers on this project who are just like like we want you to go wild with your imagination and make the thing that the movie you want to make instead of being forced into a scenario of making some product that people are telling you what to make and to just go for it and that's exactly what i did for better that's or for what worse. i was that's what i was sitting there thinking during this whole thing was i don't know if i've seen a movie this creatively free in a long time um, for sure that you know that if if there's a situation that allows you to do this then you could have probably done nearly anything you wanted uh for this so uh i was wondering what the circumstances were there and it sounds like you it may have just been a stroke of luck yeah well uh, uh my friend uh Stuart andrews uh who i've known for a long time he's a writer at rue morgue and uh just like in the genre community, he Very cool. had he had a friend who uh, had a lot of money um, and didn't didn't really know what to do. That he wanted to invest in something, and he wanted to potentially invest in a movie. And so Stuart convinced him to uh, take on this project um, and basically just entirely finance the thing with independent equity, which uh, is yeah very 
one-of-a-kind scenario that you typically don't get for movies. Usually there's so many hoops to jump through to get your vision on screen. But thankfully it was just uh, some very generous uh, financiers uh, contributing to this project uh, and trusting that my vision would be something that wouldn't lead to a, a total dumpster fire of a movie, uh, which I will forever be in debt to them for. That's really good to hear, though. That's that's really nice to hear. I mean, I'm sure you definitely had hard days and stuff, but that just, it, you know, just the idea that you were, you don't. I feel like you don't hear enough stories like this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, don't get me wrong. Like, this was a very tough movie to make. Yeah, and, yeah. Like, almost murdered me on multiple occasions. Like, it was way too ambitious for the budget that we had. It was like just way too many effects and creatures and things like I aimed way too high, even though on paper, I like remember writing the script and thinking like, oh, this is like a pretty small movie. Like this is achievable. But then cut to like a year and a half later and I'm at the shop shooting miniature inserts like <laughs> at midnight, like just trying to like hit a deadline and cursing my own name because it's was entirely my fault. Like there's no one. No one else I could blame but myself. Um, but still, like, I feel like like just the fact that I was in that scenario where I could do what I wanted, like, that gave me so much creative energy that it allowed yeah. me to fight and, like, bite and claw my way through making this movie and getting it done because I knew that, like, this was a one-of-a-kind scenario and I had to, I had yeah. to take my shot. I think people are going to really appreciate it. Though. Like, I wanted to see a movie about each one of those characters that were like in the council, uh, you know, or the people that came down to, to try to help him or whatever. I just like, those were so, every, every one of them looked different. They were such unique designs and, you know, and they, they definitely had that like eighties feel to them. Um, Oh yeah. You know. Well, my intention was, uh, to try and emulate the feeling I had as a kid watching, uh, like something like empire strikes back. Like when yeah. all the alien bounty hunters show up, like I wanted <laughs> that vibe of like, you see these characters for 10, 15 seconds, but it's enough time to get your imagination going. And so I wanted to just constantly tease at this larger universe and tease just enough that it's satisfying, but also leaves you wanting more and not, but not feeling cheated at the same time. So it was yeah. a case of like coming up with characters that were iconic and memorable in the short screen time they have and like giving them each a moment. So you're like, you, you get enough that you want more instead of it just being a wash of like basically just gibberish on screen. I wanted it to still be satisfying, but also like have you thinking about it when the movie's done and being like, I want to know what's up with that guy. That's just a big trash can full of body parts. Like I, I want people <laughs> asking those questions after the movie. You, I was, I was wondering what the, there's not if I'm if I'm correct about what I've seen in this movie, there's not very many digital effects in this, right? There's a lot of puppets and costumes and makeup and stuff. It's very much a practical effects movie. There is lots of VFX, like there's enhancement and cleanup and stuff like that. Um, there's a lot of compositing used uh, to realize like the flashback sequences uh, and like putting our actors into the miniatures that we build. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is mostly practical or like at the very least, like rooted in a practical thing, like any, any opportunity I had to like build something as even just a reference, I would do it. And whether yeah. that thing, yeah, got like composited into a sequence or scanned and turned into a 3d element, like there's always, it, it all came back to practical, uh, in some way. Um, because to me, that's just what a timeless movie should be. I wanted it to feel like, like while it does feel very much like a late eighties, early nineties era video store movie, like I think having excessive CG in the film would have, would have dated it in a really bad way. Like in the way that having like any kind of CG creature in a thing now to me feels like, Oh, okay. Like that's, that's of that era and nothing else. And right. I think it's important to make your movies at least feel even if they're dated like timeless in the way that they're dated if that makes sense and so i wanted to stay authentic to that i've gotten to this point too watching movies where uh you know yeah sure puppets and and costumes and things like that can can look bad but it's still real so i still yep 
uh, have a, uh, an affinity for it. Whereas mm-hmm. the digital characters and things like that, they can, they've gotten to the point where they, where they look pretty good, but they're, they're still, there's still something about it. That's not well, quite right. And, uh, so I really, I really appreciated the fact that in this one, uh, there were, it just felt like you could actually go up to this person and actually, you know, uh, touch certain things about them and everything. Well, yeah. I mean, having a practical thing on set is always great just in terms of it's in the dynamic lighting of the scenario. It's with the actors. It's like interacting with any kind of atmosphere you have on set. Like there's always that disconnect with CG characters where they're just, you can tell they're just not there. And I mm-hmm. agree with what you're saying about like even a bad puppet is mm-hmm. endearing. Like there's, there's nothing I love more than like a, a shitty, awkward puppet in a movie that's like <laughs> not convincing, but it's like, but I still love it. Cause I'm just like, somebody made that thing. And like, they were on set and somebody like, like they're like looking at the monitors being like, yep, that's what we want. Roll cameras. <laughs> like I just, yeah, that to me is so much of what movies are. Like that's what my passion for movies comes from is, is that uh, like trying and failing is so charming to me. Um, mm-hmm. And like, it's really not a failure if I'm still revisiting these things and am engaged by them. So yeah, I think there is way more charm in that than like a CG creature that is like, just feels poorly executed and isn't convincing and it isn't fun to look at. Right. And I, and you get, and as the way this movie is, it, it comes, it, it lets you have a lot of like fun visual gags in it that, uh, you, I don't think you would have been able to do digitally as well. Um, yeah, well, and like, I definitely wrote the whole thing with that in mind of like, like planning things in terms of like, well, how would I do this on set? And like, what, what is the execution even going to be for this thing? Um, Mm -hmm. And and all again, always rooting it in some kind of practical nature, because that is just like, those are just the types of movies that I'm influenced by. And that like instinctually, I think just inform my writing and my development process is just pre CG era stuff where it's like, you just had to figure out how to do it on set. Cause there was no other way to yeah. do it. Uh, this is a, a story that is, will be f- familiar in some ways, but there's a obviously added wrinkles to it. Uh, uh, it's like ET or iron giant where a kid stumbles on, you know, something from outer space and whatever. But in, in, in your case, uh, what if that per that kid, isn't exactly quite right in the head themselves if they stumble on uh, something like this and the performance, and I'm going to have to have help probably with the pronunciation, but Nita Josie Hannah. Yep. Yeah, you got it. Uh, she's great in this. And uh, um, I, I was kind of wondering how in the world she got on board with this and just, did she just run <laughs> with it? Did you have to kind of like, tell her and remind her what's going on or was she just there for moment one? Uh, I mean, thankfully Nita was like, and I shouldn't say was, is already kind of Mimi in real life. <laughs> so that helped. Um, and, th- and that applies to all the kids. Like, and this was a big concern writing this project. Like I, I showed the treatment to people and like, everybody's like, Oh, this is great. But, it entirely hinges on your kid actors. So like what happens, like what if they suck? Like what if you're, Mm -hmm. you know, we have a, we have a start date for production that we have to hit. What happens if we get actors on set that are not delivering? Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was a huge concern going into this project. And so we cast a really wide net um, with our casting call for our kid actors. And amazingly, like Nita was in one of the first rounds of casting. Uh, even though we mm-hmm. saw, I felt like hundreds of tapes and auditions and things, but she, we just kept coming back to her because I could see even in her first audition, like she had a level of professionalism uh, that I think like, I just knew that we would need on set because mm-hmm. I, my concern more than anything was that we'd get a kid that was good in a self tape where their parents are feeding them lines off camera. 
Um, but you bring them to a set where there's like a hundred people standing around and like, are they going to just shut down because it's like a social situation that like a kid has never been in before. But mm-hmm. Nita, uh, like Nita, Owen and Scout, it's like they all had, they were all experienced. Uh, Nita like was experienced in like singing and dance and theater so she's been in front of crowds before. Like she got it immediately. And like, so when she walked on set, it was no big deal. She just like walked mm. in and started bossing people around. And it was like, okay, great. <laughs> like we can start shooting now. Um, so yeah, we really lucked out in that everybody kind of embodied their characters already. And also just brought a level of energy to the set uh, that I think we really needed. It was a very tight shoot as these things always are. and ambitious and that there was just so much shit going on like so many effects and like stunts and shooting in like like this the warehouse we were in for the majority of the movie like it was just like cold and crappy to be there like it like sets are not fun on like low budget movies like this it's like there's we're out in the rain we're out in the mud like trudging through this forest like these are all pretty punishing scenarios to put people through and so having kids that were excited to be involved, that were passionate about the material that got their characters. Like Nita had the whole script memorized because when you're in theater, that's what you have to do. Like you're playing, Mm -hmm. you're performing the whole thing like every night. And so she had to know her lines, everybody else's lines, all the stage direction. And she had it all committed to memory. So like I'd show up on set being like, what are we doing? And she'd be like, oh, we're doing a bubble. And like explain what the day was to me because she had it all committed to memory. <laughs> so like the kids basically became the mascots of the movie because they they had the most energy and were the most committed. So everybody else had to fall in line with them because they're like, well, like if this little girl is this hyped about this thing, like I gotta, I gotta be on the ball too. So it was great having having them as like kind of the like headliners of this thing and like being the mascots of the project and keeping that energy up on set was really awesome. So yeah, I can't speak enough to how lucky we were uh, with our casting on this one because it could have gone south very easily. It's, it's just crazy watching this performance just because it, at one moment she will be in this mood and just on a dime turn on on, into another mood and it's just uh it's just a fantastic thing to watch and uh it's uh it's amazing that uh she was just sort of like you know she sort of just got it right off the bat and she was already like this or whatever and you didn't have to really uh rein her in necessarily um uh she just was was uh ready to go from the minute uh you started it sounds like so I, I just like that the character was um, was was good. You know, she she was excited about making cakes, but then she was also okay with like burying her brother. Or uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, th- like to just speak about like the concept of Mimi and kind of where that came from. Like when I initially came up with this idea, I you know, ob- being a genre fan, I was coming up with all the fantasy stuff first, and so I was coming up with PG as a character. And like all that stuff that was super fun and exciting to me. But when I came to the kids, I realized like none of this like spectacle stuff that I've come up with is going to land if what that's paired with feels flat or placeholder. Like the kids in the movie could not be like stock character types, like what I've been calling like the Harry Potter syndrome of like Mm -hmm. just wide eyed innocence all the time where they're just like mm-hmm. observing the plot and not actively engaged in the plot. Right. And so I was, that's got my brain working on like, well, what is a character that would stand up to this ancient evil space monster? That's like, basically like could murder all of them at any time. Like who would have the confidence to stand up to that? And so that's mm-hmm. where the character of Mimi grew out of was like well what we need is a character that's just as psychotic as pg just in her own way and yeah i was able to draw from experiences uh like in my own life with uh like kids that are uh like in my family like uh 
relatives, like younger cousins, and then also like kids of people that I work with that I've met. And I was just kind of combining all those experiences into one character because I realized like I know a lot of kids that have uh, very big personalities. And when you're at a certain age, I think you you have a lot of confidence before the like self-doubt of adolescence starts to sink in and you start to get mm-hmm. that self-awareness that leads to like a lack of confidence. So I wanted it to like, I wanted the characters to be at that age where they live in their own fantasy worlds where they make the rules and they're hyper confident about those rules. And so drawing from those experiences helped craft Mimi and make her like in the way that PG is the ultimate evil warlord of the universe mimi is the ultimate evil warlord of like suburbia essentially like she (laughs) she runs her household in the way that pg runs the galaxy and once i made those connections like those parallels between those characters like that's when the story really started to come together for me because it was fun having these two characters square off against each other um and and drawing those parallels between the two yeah but even though it's this crazy situation, I mean, she feels like a kid. I mean, she feels like an actual kid because, you know, kids would they wouldn't just run to the police like they they would try to figure out how they could use this to their advantage, especially once they realize they have one. Um, You know, I don't oh, know. It just oh, felt yeah. very realistic in an unrealistic situation, I guess. Yeah, well, I think like the kids definitely put a lot of like truth into their performances, even when they're saying stuff that's totally absurd, like. Nita saying the line, uh, I don't trust cops. Like she delivers it. (laughs) She delivers it in such a like genuine way that it makes you go like, it doesn't make you go, that doesn't make sense. It makes you go, I want to know what happened with her and those cops that made her not trust them. Like it makes you wonder. It, it, I feel like the genuine delivery of all these things just pulls you into the universe instead of making you question the stupidity of it. Um, and that's my, like, one of my favorite things to do is just like suck you into the alternate reality that is this movie I've crafted where Mm -hmm. these kinds of nonsense lines ring true and inform the universe that's playing out in front of you without, without pulling you out and making you question it. And a lot of that just comes from how genuine, uh, the performances were, especially with the kids. There's so much in this that. I mean, you've, you've made a movie here where I do believe that if you watch it a few more times, you're going to end up catching things you didn't before. That's how much stuff is going on in this. You really populated this world with a, just not only visual gags, but just a lot of like quick, you know, uh, you know, quick, uh, quick lines and things like that. And, uh, I don't know if you set out to do that right off the bat, but that's uh, what you got here. Well, I'm a big fan of uh, setups and callbacks. Like, mm-hmm. I think especially in like this kind of genre movie, like it's important to have those payoffs. And it's a thing I'm not seeing enough in modern movies is the like set up a thing in act one and then have it pay off in a crazy way in act three. Like, I feel like the last 15 minutes of this movie is just like one payoff after another. Right. And it was very deliberate and a thing that like is true to this type of storytelling that uh, maybe was more in movies that were like uh, 80s and 90s and have just kind of faded away since then. But yeah, planting as many like basically like as many buried guns as possible is a thing that I like to do in writing mm-hmm. um, because it just it adds to the audience engagement. It's the thing that I love in movies, feeling that payoff of a thing where you go like, oh, that, that you know, that was set up in the first 10 minutes and now it's paying off. Like, I like that feeling and yeah. I like yeah, for br- sure. it's part of just bringing the audience on on the ride that is the movie, like making it that fun house that it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, just to speak to like the details of the universe, uh, like I'm a huge fan of having like rich universes of like characters and mythologies that you just kind of tease at um because i mean just so many of my favorite movies are built on stuff like that i mean obviously Mm -hmm. i mentioned star wars already um though i've also been bringing up that the alien council scene in the film is a (laughs) bit of a 
uh, Star Wars prequel homage, which is a thing. I wonder if <laughs> yeah. I'm the if I'm the first person to do like a genuine reference to those movies <laughs> in his own films. I was thinking that. I was uh, there was there's there's a there's a couple of creatures in there that reminded me of like the prequels in there, uh, and uh, so it was kind of an interesting uh, thing to watch. I didn't know if that was a, a you know a you know sort of a reference or not, but it does uh, what it turned out to be. Well, what I wanted to emulate was the confusion I felt when, I, as a kid, seeing Phantom Menace in the theater for the first time, opening <laughs> night, and mm-hmm. getting that opening crawl. And trying to make sense of the crawl when I was a oh kid and being like, so we're talking about trade disputes and yeah. like, and immediately my kid brain is like, it's Star Wars. So I'm going to tell myself this is great, but I don't understand what's going on. And so mm-hmm. there specifically in the Gygax council scene, when uh, the one guy judicator says like the, uh, paraphrasing the the gygaxian unity accords have failed us i wanted that to be a line that made people go like what (laughs) like what what is that accomplishing like what is he talking about and then we just cut away to something else um so yeah i that's a kind of like trolling the audience moment that i uh i love doing because it's yeah i think i just love laughing at moments like that in other uh genre media where they're like referencing part of their universe but it doesn't actually inform the plot in any way so you're just you're just left being like why are we talking about this what does this accomplish so yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. it also Um, kind of weirdly reminded me of um uh toby hooper's invaders from mars remake oh yeah like like if um like if the parents actually believed the kid and you know then had to do what the kid said i don't know it just uh, and maybe some of the puppetry reminded me of that as well. Oh yeah. No, the effects in that movie are fucking awesome. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, and that, and that brings up another point that like in these movies, like in like ET, I maybe don't want to dump on ET cause that movie's great. But I mean, a lot of these movies where it's like real world mixed with fantasy, you always have to have all these scenes of convincing people of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And mm. that's that part is so boring to me, like because yeah. you all know when it's happening, you're like, this doesn't, this isn't going to matter in twenty minutes. Like we're going to be out of this, and everybody's going to be on board, and we're going to be at the stuff we want to see. But we got to sit here and watch the kid characters convince the local sheriff that something's yeah. afoot. And so, I, in this movie, I wanted to try and sidestep that every opportunity I got. And well, so and you didn't really have. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say you didn't really have the care, the kids trying to hide anything either, which is always kind of silly to me because yeah. kids can't hide anything. Like they're terrible. Like my daughter is terrible at hiding stuff. Oh yeah. Well, and I feel like they hide it at the dinner scene, which lasts for yeah. all of like 30 seconds, maybe <laughs> like, and cause yeah, I wanted to completely undercut that by then the next scene being like oh well now pg's in the backyard so that (laughs) didn't mean anything did it um and then yeah just having like wrapping all that up as quickly as possible with having the parents come out and encounter pg and like i feel like we're missing 15 minutes of movie that would have been in another movie where when they're on the ground looking up at him and he's saying i'm gonna kill you like they would have wrapped that up in another movie and probably like had a few more scenes of convincing the parents. Mm. But I, I made the conscious decision of like, I am just going to leave that hanging and I'm just going to hard cut to montage of everything's okay. And people are having fun because you don't, <laughs> you don't need that moment. That moment doesn't do anything, especially in a story like this and nobody cares. <laughs> so the idea of undercutting that, by firmly establishing that he wants to murder them and that like the world is going to end and Mimi is crazy and the parents are doomed hard cutting to everybody's friends again. And we're all getting along was like <laughs> my F you to that. Those like expected tropes of storytelling. Like if I had made this movie through proper channels and gotten like more legitimate, like, I don't know, government funding or something for it. Surely there would have been that, discussion on the script where it's like we think we need to like explain like why people are okay with pg a bit more like could you have more scenes of that maybe in your script right so 
I, having this opportunity to just do it the way I wanted to do it, I was happy to embrace the nonsense of it and completely just breeze over <laughs> those plot details that that completely bore me in this kind of movie and therefore are not relevant in the story I'm telling. Did you also, you, you're, you know, you were talking about trying to make, uh, uh, you know, movie timeless with, uh, uh, you know, using costumes instead of special effects and a lot of things and whatever. But did you do that with the era in which this movie is set as well? Because it seems like you kind of skit like, it could fit in the eighties. It could fit the nineties. It could fit the, you know, the aughts if you wanted to. Uh, but it doesn't seem to have like a certain setting unless I missed a year just thrown on the screen or something. <laughs> oh no, there was no hard date. I'm a fan of the like non time that movies mm-hmm. can be set in as uh, mm-hmm. a thing that Jeremy and I did on the void as well, mm-hmm. where it's like, we don't overtly say when that movie takes place, but the cars are like, seem like late eighties at, at yeah. the latest. Um, and there's no cell phones. And so I wanted to do the same with this where there's no cell phones. Um, but we have PG dressed as Dr. Grant from Jurassic park at one point. <laughs> right. Um, and then we do have the kids playing in 64. So there is, I guess, I guess that firmly sets us somewhere in the mid nineties. Like, right. I, Maybe ninety six. I don't know. I but I I'm not hard committed to any of that. It can be any time. There was a point where I was like, okay, this feels like the eighties. But then they're playing that video game, and I'm like, okay, that's definitely before this era of video games. But it's not like a. I don't think it was a real video game, was it? That they were playing. No, actually, uh, our post production supervisor made that himself. Yeah, and generated that image of. Uh, believe the game is called rage master 64 uh <laughs> and yeah it's like very early polygon graphics so it, right. it looks like a ps1 or n64 era game right and then you had you had you, you you took the cell phones out which sort of like okay that that's not ubiquitous yet but then you have flat panel screen tv screens and things like that so i was like i was sitting there going okay this has got to be on purpose uh but i i just wanted to i just wanted to kind of uh you know uh, just ask you about that um uh, the, the thing about, uh, but the thing that really, for me always gets me into, uh, this era and everything is music. And, uh, and in this one you have, uh, I, I guess it's a band called Blitz Berlin, uh, doing yes. music for this. And, uh, uh, that electronic type of music just always gets you into the era and everything. I don't think you can do that without it. So how did you, uh, uh, what was the story behind getting them? Well, uh, Blitz Berlin are composers that I've worked with before. Um, mm-hmm. They're based out of LA. They do a lot of work in uh, like doing movie trailers, actually, um, mm. and also like scoring uh, lower budget films. They had done a bunch of music for The Void for us that I really loved. And mm-hmm. I kept in touch with them since then. Uh, and one of the guys, Martin, uh, one of the composers, Uh, we talk a lot and I was pitching him this movie idea and he was just so excited about it that I was like, I'm pretty confident these guys are the right fit for the movie. Um, Because in discussing the movie with him, I was telling him like, I wanted to have a little bit of a vibe of like the music in Highlander. Like I Mm. love that era of movie score Mm. where there'd be like a band attached to it that would like also do tracks for the movie. And so Martin immediately like fell in love with that idea. And so they composed that song, uh, two hands, one heart, uh, which plays <laughs> yeah. over the first part of the end credits. Uh, and it also plays in the trailers for the movie. Uh, it's kind of like the <laughs> anthem of the movie at this point. Um, uh... so they, they had, they knew the approach that needed to be taken with this movie, which was like balance, like kind of synth, uh, almost like, like I hesitate to say carpenter but like it, it'll always get compared to that no matter what. But like that kind of like synth score that's, uh, was very much part of like eighties movie scores, uh, combining that with rock, um, really like gave the movie its, 
personality. And uh, as far as like other score influences, uh, the Ninja Turtle score is really great. Um, mm-hmm. And I temp scored a good chunk of the movie with it, actually. And uh, oh yeah, also the uh, the crazy ball theme, like the music that plays at the beginning and uh, in the climax of the film, very much an homage to the Power Rangers theme song. Yeah. Uh, so there's like all kinds of little references throughout, uh, and then obviously the end credit song, the rap song that Blitz Berlin yeah. did, uh, <laughs> very much a reference to a gimmick from. Uh, movies of my youth that i miss very much is the rap song that sums up the plot of the movie Um, the one that i have vivid memories of is going to see the remake of assault on precinct 13 uh Uh i believe it was 2006 and that i don't remember the artist's name but that movie ends with a rap song that's like name dropping Ethan Hawke and Lawrence Fishburne. So it's not just summing up the plot of the movie, but also like breaking the fourth wall and like talking about the actors. So I remember, yeah, yeah. like walking out of the theater and laughing as the song was playing and being like, all right, you just like completely undercut like any kind of tension that your movie was setting up. But I okay. want to watch that with John Carpenter and just <laughs> that, like see his reaction. That would have been, that would have been amazing. Like to the remake specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Just to the remake. Yeah. I or mean, to the, I'm just saying to that rap song over the end credits. <laughs> I feel like yeah. somebody needs somebody needs to make that video just of him like sitting in a room and they just put that song on and he just listens to it <laughs> and just film his wh- whatever grumpy reaction he has to that. I think would be great to watch. <laughs> I'm all over it. He's got like a Kentucky basketball game on in the background. That he's paying more attention to. <laughs> what the hell is this shit? there's a um there's a game that the kids play at the beginning and the end of this movie did you this is maybe an odd question but did you actually come up with real rules for that game or did you just say screw it i'm i'm you know it's whatever it is it is but yeah i I was just wondering because it seemed like they knew what the rules were so i was wondering if you actually made rules for that game well i did actually come up with very bare bones rules for it just in terms of like like just enough rules to cover the beats that needed to happen in each sequence Mm -hmm. uh so i mean there could be more rules that we're not seeing but i came up with enough that like our actors had something to work with because i knew like if i just committed to it being gibberish then it would get confusing for everybody and especially in the edit too like they wouldn't be able to keep things straight like Mm -hmm. probably deliveries would have changed and like it would have just been all over the place so i came up with a very basic set of nonsense rules for the game um (laughs) and so like it, it definitely helped the actors understand what they were doing because it didn't make there was a clear through line to to win the game it mm. was just absurd what it took to get to that point. Um, right. So, yeah, like if, I mean, if you go through the movie and like write down everything that they say and map it out, like the game does make sense mm-hmm. in its own weird way. Um, because, yeah, I just felt like in terms of like giving direction to people, especially like the kid actors, I had a concern that like if this thing is nonsense, then it's just not going to. Like, it's just not going to pan out on set because everybody's going to be standing around confused. Whereas if I have at least the vaguest sense of, like, what the through line of this game is, it'll just streamline the process of shooting a lot more and make it easier right. for everybody. It's easier, it's easier to, like, take a thing that makes sense and then chop it down so it feels like it doesn't make sense than just take a bunch of nonsense and <laughs> make it flow in the same way, if that makes right. any sense. No, that totally makes sense. Uh, I do like the, uh, you know, the fact that the people who are in this game uh, have to stand at some point and just like, do you guys know what the rules are? I'm completely confused. And, you know, but, you know, they don't even know how they're supposed to win this, you know? Well, that it's funny because that uh, was an idea that I've had that I've wanted to put in a climax for so long um, mm-hmm. because like, climaxes of these types of movies like as much as i love the action and the spectacle of it like mm-hmm. there's really they're really very hollow like like end fights and battles and things and so i've had this idea in my head for a while of like having your good guys and your bad guys 
play some game that they don't even understand and just getting confused by it and and just like kind of exposing the absurdity of like just the concept of a climax of like, like, what are we even doing at this point? Like, like the story has wrapped up pretty much and we're just doing this like song and dance because we have to. And so I wanted, I wanted that sequence, especially at the end where everyone's just like, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) <laughs> like or just or more importantly, some characters are confused and other characters seem way too confident in what they're doing. Right. <laughs> Where it's like, why why does it make perfect sense to Greg? Whereas Pandora can't wrap her brain around it. Like yeah. I, I just wanted to like really bask in the like pointlessness of the climax as a concept with that sequence and have people just be totally confused and like any kind of tension that we've built up to that point completely undercut it yeah make it feel as absurd as possible well you know to your point like it you know if it if it does come down to these two big baddies fighting each other a lot of times movies have a hard time explaining why one has the advantage over the other and what their powers are and what it means and and everything so a lot of times when the whoever's supposed to win wins you're just like kind of shrug and go well i guess that's what was supposed to happen so <laughs> yeah and you exactly that's exactly how i feel about a lot of climaxes it's like it, it always feels rushed and like the least thought out part of the movie when it's supposed to be the most satisfying and important part right um, so for me with the climax of pg it was like satisfying the emotional resolutions of like mimi and luke's relationship like Mm -hmm. like concluding that in a in a heartfelt and genuine way uh even though it gets totally silly with the song like i still feel like it (laughs) delivers in terms of like them reconciling Mm -hmm. uh and then all and then like the rest of it is just like window dressing basically there to be ignored in the way that the kids are not at all engaged in this end battle that's going on like the sword fight (laughs) i mean I feel like if I had made this movie like 15 years ago when I was still like still totally bought into the idea of like the climactic end fight, like mm-hmm. it would have been a 10 minute sword fight, but instead yeah. it's like it starts and then it's cutting to Mimi looking bored and it's like them doing their <laughs> own thing while the sword fight's yeah. happening in the background because it doesn't ultimately means nothing. It's just like delaying the inevitable. And so I want to actually embrace that this time around. That's another thing that I love about this. I think it happens about three or four times in this movie where there's this really intense thing going on with your big, with your score over it and everything. And then we sort of, you know, go back. It's sort of, uh, you know, have a casual observer from 20 feet away. Who's just like, you know, if you, if you were to have a casual observer from 20 feet away, no (laughs) score, no score at all. You just see two people just being stupid. Basically. (laughs) Yeah. No, that really sums up my attitude towards these types of movies is that like when you're in it, when you're in the moment, it's awesome and you love it. But it's like, think about the guy that's like watching this from a distance that's not engaged. Right. Just think about how dumb all of it is. And (laughs) balancing and just like jumping back and forth between those two things to me, like... It, it's funny because it's, it's not me trying to be like snobby about these kinds of movies either. Like the, showing the stupidity of it just makes me love it even more. Like, yeah. Just love this type of storytelling and makes me more passionate for it because mm-hmm. it doesn't change the fact that when I'm in it, I'm 100% into it. Um, yeah. It's just, you know, you sometimes have to acknowledge like, yeah, it's a movie and it's people in rubber monster suits, uh, like banging swords together while sparks go off. Like, <laughs> You know, it is exactly what it sounds like. So yeah, you got to embrace that side of it as well. Um, I think we only have a couple more minutes. Jonathan, you got anything else? Well, no, I was just curious about uh, future projects. If you could talk about anything I saw, I, I saw on IMDb, you've directed a few episodes of a day of the dead series, or you're going to be doing that. Yes, actually that I wrapped up that, uh, back in December of last year i did four episodes of that series for sci-fi channel um yeah it was super fun to do i they're still in the thick of uh post-production right now i'm not really allowed to say much about it other than uh, master's effects 
did the zombie effects on it, who's the company that I work for, and also did uh, like effects on PG as well as uh, Leprechaun Returns. Oh, wow. um, and so, yeah, uh, the zombies are super cool. It's really fun realizing a bunch of interesting, unique zombie characters for the film, the series. And uh, yeah, I'm excited for people to see it. Real quick, if you can't, do have a couple of minutes, I'm really curious. I don't know if I'll ever talk to a director of a Leprechaun movie again. So <laughs> what, what, what is that like? <laughs> uh, you know what? It was a way better experience than I was expecting it to be. Oh, that's good. I kind of said yes to it as a laugh and yeah. as a like, well, at the very least, I'll get paid to direct a thing, which is was an experience I had not experienced up to that point. But honestly, like being in that world and like being able to like work with a franchise character and kind of put my own spin on it yeah, uh, was way more creatively satisfying than I ever could have anticipated. And I realized it kind of satisfied um, a creative urge that I've had since I started making movies, which is like the challenge of being given a franchise to something that maybe isn't like your favorite thing, but being able to just like go into the headspace of whatever that is and like kind of figuring out as an outside observer, like what are the things that make this work and like what about this idea makes me passionate for the idea and like embracing those concepts and trying to like push them to the front as much as possible. So obviously with that, I was like, the only way this movie is going to work is if I just throw as many effects at the screen as possible, which I really got to do. And I think like if you dub that movie to VHS and you send it back to 1994 and put it yeah. on the video store shelf, it'll fit right in. It's like absolutely a movie that uh, it really captures the spirit of when I was watching when I was a kid and I rented uh, Leprechaun three, yeah. the one where he goes to Vegas, yeah, <laughs> uh, which to me is like the high point of the franchise, in my opinion. Probably, um, yes. But just yeah. like that kind of goofy, dumb fun that those types of movies, like those straight to video movies, used to be, that we just don't have anymore. Yeah. Um, and that kind of simplicity of like, here's your crazy character, here's a bunch of teens, he's going to kill them one by one in elaborate ways, like just the simplicity of that was so liberating so yeah i mean i had a ton of fun making that movie if they ever were like hey do you want to do another one i'd be all over it just because That's awesome i feel like i managed to put like a little bit of my own stamp on that character and now uh my last words uh, on my deathbed can be hey remember when i made that leprechaun movie <laughs> uh, which is and halloween 2018 copied you guys right because yeah well that's the weird thing is like right after yeah that came out and so we were kind of the in a way the pioneers of the whole like reboot sequel thing where you just get rid of the middle movies though i will say that the godzilla movies did that a bunch of times that's already. true yeah that's true. uh where they're like oh we'll acknowledge the first one but not like the 20 other sequels that came after <laughs> so not the first technically uh, we'd like to thank uh, Stephen Kostansky for giving us his time. The movie is Psycho Gorman. It comes out January 22nd in uh, uh, all the things that you can watch movies, uh, it looks like. Um, uh, it is really good. I can, I can, uh, I can vouch for this movie. It's yes. very, very funny. Uh, watch this movie. It's really good. Um, but uh, that's going to do it for this interview. It's Chris Atkinson and Jonathan Watkins. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Comment on our episodes on our SoundCloud page. Check us out on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. And be sure to visit cinemasins.com.